Welcome to the Art of Getting Your Shit Together podcast, where each week we help you identify the bullshit that's holding you back and discover the courage to take action to create a life you love and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Tagist, the Art of Getting Your Shit Together. Yeah, we're back again. Still social distancing. We take the social distancing very seriously at Tagist. We're trying to do our part. I feel like if everyone does the best they can, that's all we can do. So here we are. I saw a meme the other day and it was like, we're being called to sit on our couch. We can do this. And I was like, yes, yes, we can do hard things. We can get on the couch. We are going to go into war together from our couches. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. (laughs) I loved what our friend said. She's like, you know, there's some days where I'm like, I just want a day off. And then she's like, now I just really want to go to work. (laughs) <laughs> she's like I'm, we always I'm only two days into this <laughs> we, always, we always want what we can't have ain't that something it is something it's coming back to slap us all right in the face yeah well i hope everyone's out there staying safe and sane and, and if you are going through and, and suffering through a, a tragedy or someone is really suffering through this illness our hearts go out to you Um, I can't imagine kind of how this is all just shaken up so many lives and I I wish we could just hug everybody, right? I'm a hugger. Some people aren't. Oh, I can't wait to hug people. I have a list. I just, I miss people and it breaks my heart hearing stories about how people are dying alone and not being able to see their loved ones, you know, in their last minutes of life because they're quarantined. They're not allowed to be in the room with them. And that to me just hurts deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I couldn't imagine just knowing what was going on, but not being able to be present and share that moment with those that I love the most. So anyway, not to dampen the mood, but that's what's happening out there. And we love you. Yep. And we're here with you today and we've got some fun things we're going to talk about today, which actually maybe take your mind off the craziness for just a hot second. Yeah. I hope so. There's some fun things that I've been diving into during this time at home. (laughs) Lots of good information, but I purchased the most recent National Geographic magazine. um, And it's about, it it was titled Your Emotions, the Science About How You Feel. I'm like, this sounds wonderful. And in it, they kind of break down, you know, what are emotions? What are moods? What is the difference? And they go through the various types of emotions happy emotions, you know, um, sad emotions, emotions like anxiety, um, depression, all of kind of our major emotion labels that we experience. And in them, they busted some myths in each category. And I thought those were some of the most fascinating. And some of them were almost humorous. And they, some of them took me down some serious rabbit holes. Cause I was like, I need to know more about this. You just giving me this little tidbit. Well, where does this information even come from? So a lot of waste of time on the internet and some of them, but I wanted to share because it's good information. I think knowing, understanding the, the human mind and we've just barely scraped the surface, right? Oh yeah. And it's always changing. And me as a very curious human, I'm fascinated. Um, with people's emotions. I always say I can handle emotion. I'm how people respond differently in different scenarios, how people show up every day and kind of what people's set points are. Like where do they resonate the most also fascinates me. So 
I just, I guess we'll just dig in, right? I, I, that was kind of a long winded intro, but that's kind of where all this came from. So we're going to go through nine emotional myths. And the first one isn't necessarily about our emotions, but it's about our brain. I know I've heard this term the most, probably from Jenna, right brain, left brained, because you consider yourself what? I, I'm equal. You're equal. Yeah. I actually took a test on the internet that told me that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that test was there for you. <laughs> and that's kind of where this concept of being people being left brain or right brain came from. It was, this wasn't in the myth, but this is kind of, this is one of my rabbit holes. So it's a theory that w- was originated in the work of Roger Sperry, who was awarded a Nobel prize in 1981. He studied brain functioning in patients who had their corpus callosum or their two hemispheres of the brain surgically severed to treat refractory epilepsy. Now, refractory epilepsy is drug-resistant epilepsy. So it's, it's very devastating to lifestyle and it's just it's a devastating disease. However, these patients who had their hemispheres separated also experienced other symptoms after the communication pathways between the two sides of the brain were cut. For example, many split brain patients found themselves unable to name objects that were processed by the right side of the brain, but were able to name objects that were processed by the left side of the brain. So Sperry suggested that the language controlled by the left brain and the right brain were really separate at that time. So that's where this information came from. So people could just really be more left-sided or right-sided. Now there's been a lot of information since and a lot of study since that show that this is in fact a myth. But the reason why it's still around and we hear about it so much is because pop culture took over. There's so many surveys, there's tests, there's fun images. So are you left or right brain? Like the study that Jenna did that told her that she's of equal parts, (laughs) (laughs) which is great because that's what we all are. So I'll read the myth that came from this article. And I should note that this whole compilation of data and information was condensed and put together in this edition of National Geographic by Tula Karras. So I need to give her credit before I even move forward. So this myth says, you may have heard the creative people are right-brained and analytical people are quote-unquote left-brained. Although some people are more spontaneous and others are more logical, this has nothing to do with which side of the brain is more active. A study done in 2013 led by Jared Nielsen, now at Brigham Young University, looked at functional MRIs over 1,000 people and found that everyone had an equal activity in both sides of the brain. So in other words, regardless of how creative or analytical we are, we don't favor one hemisphere over the other. They also did other studies in the University of Utah, and those brain scans also came up that we use equal sides of the brain. There were so many that were listed here and I pulled up several articles and I won't go through all that data, but yes, we are not right or left side. We have equal sides. So when you hear people say I'm left, I'm more left brained. No, you're not. We need to use more of our brains. All of it. Doesn't that sound better anyway? It does. I would rather use all of my brain. That was another myth in another article. Like we only use 10% of our brains. That was also a myth. I can't imagine being blessed with an organ that you only use 10% of. What kind of sick joke is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great point. (laughs) 
here's a heart. You only get to use 10% of it. Okay, sure. So why, why is it crazy? Yeah, stupid, dumb. Maybe whoever said that was only using 10% of their brain. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Myth number two, we could all use more empathy. Actually, a small percentage of the population has all the empathy it can handle. The phenomenon of mirror touch. I'm going to mess this word up. I had, I looked this up and even had to say this synesthesia or MTS happens in people whose mirror neurons are profoundly sensitive, causing their brains to recreate the sensory and emotional experience of other people so much so that they can become entangled in others' experiences and have difficulty knowing where their own feelings end and others begin. We all have some level of mirror touch activity. For example, when you watch someone walk into a wall, you shudder. That's likely your mirror neurons activating. But people with MTS, which is only about 1% or 2% of the population, literally feel the physical pain and the emotional fallout of the person who is harmed and have carefully filtered what they also allow in. So I wanted to learn more about MTS, of course. I went down another rabbit hole, and there was a small clip of of an interview of a woman who experiences this. She says it's very hard to interact in certain situations because she can, if she sees someone with a cast on their arm, her arm will throb in pain, just shuddering pain. Um, She is unable to watch shows. She said she loved Game of Thrones, but she had to stop watching it because it was so violent. So when someone was stabbed or killed, she would feel immense pain. However, on the contrary, she can feel immense elation and joy. For example, when she went to go see a ballet and they're doing their pirouettes and they're spinning, she can also feel that sensation of spinning and her muscles firing and her body triggering. Like she wants to also do the same movement. So very intense. And, and it's all of the time. What this said is that she has to be careful of what she allows in because it is so much. So good and bad. She says she would never take it away because she feels like it's a gift on how she experiences the world. So I thought that was really cool. Wow. I know I am. I would consider myself an empath to the point where I have a hard time watching violent shows like that because it's too much. It's sensory overload for me. Like I have, I was pre-med for two years, shadow doctors and surgeries, watching them cut. It it was too much. Like it wasn't to this degree. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I have that condition because that's crazy, but I'm like, that hurts. Like what you're doing is inflicting pain and it would, it was too much for me to watch. So I had to like, so I can resonate with that, but I cannot imagine going through life feeling like truly feeling those things. Like I didn't feel them cutting me when I mm-hmm. saw that, but I was like, I just couldn't, it was overwhelming. So and you as an empath, you can feel it and you can sense it. Like we all have that sensory yeah. activation going on, but yeah, some are just more extreme. I think it's, it's probably a spectrum of sensitivity there. Yeah. Mm. And then there's some people who I'm like, man. Do you even know what this, do you know what empathy is? (laughs) (laughs) Those are sociopaths. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the way extreme, right? There's just some people who are just like, oh. Yeah, there are some people where you may not get it, or maybe they like, they just don't care. Like, how do you not care? Mm -hmm. I thought this would be a good time to note the difference between empathy and compassion. Sometimes people get those two mixed up. 
Mm-hmm. And this was noted in this article as well. It says compassion is the social emotion felt in response to another's person's suffering and is linked to feeling of caring and wanting to relieve the suffering. And some research finds that compassion may be healthier than empathy alone, just because of how empathy can kind of manifest in your body more, right? Because you're actually taking on the emotion. So studies find that behaviors associated with compassion, warm smiles, um, leaning forward, produce calming oxytocin. However, when people feel prolonged empathy because of other suffering can lead to empathetic distress and um, a stressful state can also lead to people withdrawing when you feel so much empathy towards someone, it can be overwhelming, right? We talked in our previous episode about, you know, we have a lot of energy, we have a lot of feelings and that is somewhere, right? That all goes somewhere. So we need to be able to release that in a healthy way. And I think that plays a factor here as well. All right. Number three of Miss Busted, your happiness set point is fixed for life. I didn't, wasn't sure if I really wanted to share this one, but there was some other good takeaways towards the end of this one. So hear me out here. So some researchers contend we have a genetically influenced set point or a set range that impacts how happy we may be. Evidence finds that after increases and decreases in happiness to our circumstances, most people return to their personal baseline. Positive feelings from happy events don't last. We can become used to them. And negative feelings from distressing events usually don't last either, right? We analyze, we process them, and then we release them. But only about 40 to 60% of our outlook is genetic. So it's not necessarily genetics, right? It's either just a little bit or over half. So it is a great portion of it. But life circumstances, things like gender, our health, um, our material resources, and our intentional practices, right? How we live our life every day, how we handle emotions also play a point in, in that baseline. So it's not always a set point. It flexes throughout your life. People who, for example, experience trauma, right? They could be changed forever from it. And their set point could be different. It could be lower. It could be higher, right? They could be wounded and just feel in a place of less than or sadness. And some people could see, okay, I've been here now look at all this, like they find the gifts and the meaning maybe later. And that can come at different times in people's lives. So I think that's important to know your baseline can always shift and people who experience the same thing may also have greater takeaways on either side of that. So many experts prefer to focus more on fulfillment rather than saying happiness. Mm, the art of fulfillment. Yes. This is the part. This is why I wanted to share this point. So there's happiness, right? We think we should, I want to feel happy. You know, what do you want? I just want to be happy more. Well, what mm. does that even mean? Right. It could mean so many different things. We all kind of know what that means, but really, what does that mean? I think fulfillment really digs deeper into what happiness is for individuals. Yes. I agree. In this article, they said fulfillment, other words, a profound sense of satisfaction as opposed to happiness could be more beneficial to focus on. In the moment, you may feel unhappy with a larger sense of purpose. You still feel that you are working towards fulfillment, right? So you're still getting towards the goal. So it's easier to handle the highs and lows because you know what your end goal is. I feel like happiness is the more shallow version of fulfillment. Oh, I like that. Because you can have fulfillment. You can feel fulfilled while doing things that don't necessarily mean you ha- mean you feel happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you're still working towards the fulfillment, you're still having that deeper meeting. That's like all your actions. Sandwich. You know, you're 
you eat the shit sandwich anyway, because it leads to the greater picture of fulfillment. And even though in that moment, you're not happy about it. You're still, you still know what the end goal is. Yeah. I love that. There's a theory here by a gentleman named Martin Seligman. And he has identified five components known as the PERMA model. Okay. So he talks about positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, accomplishment, all of these things and nurturing all of these things could definitely lead to a more flourishing life. So again, positive emotions, increasing emotions such as hope, contentment, and gratitude. Two is engagement, being completely immersed in a enjoyable activity you're skilled at, like work or playing tennis. (laughs) Relationships, nurturing healthy connections with individuals or a group. Number four is meaning, feeling a part of a bigger whole. And five is accomplishment, pursuing and reaching those goals. Again, can Mm -hmm. help with that sense of flourishing and fulfillment and happiness. Make sense? Love that. I'm excited about this one. I thought this one was great. Number four of myths busted. The seven-year itch. Yeah, let's talk about this. Jenna, how many years have you been married? Six. How long have you guys been together? Wouldn't that put you like nine years together? Mm, Yeah, almost a decade. Yeah. So 2021 will be a decade. So yeah, nine years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been together eight, married four. Hmm. So did we already pass our itch? I guess point? we rocked past our itch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the seven-year itch. This adage came from the fact that of marriages that end in divorce, the median length of a quote-unquote happy marriage union is about eight years. Is there a biological basis for a seven-year itch? And an eight-year endpoint. Some experts believe that humans, like certain other species, may be biologically driven to stay together only until children start to become independent. I've done my deed. And off they go. Right? That's kind of their purpose during that. And researchers have found that a romantic love and lust tend to fade over time and are often replaced with commitment. Mm -hmm. So the lust is gone, but we're committed. Right? We're in this... committed relationship, this marriage. However, when commitment isn't strong enough to keep a relationship glued together, a breakup may ensue. Hence the seven year itch, but that itch could occur at any time during the marriage. So there is no such thing as a seven year itch. It's just based on level of commitment, your purpose in your marriage, you know, all of the facets of what make your marriage great. And that could differ across the board of the meaning behind it and how you connect with your partner. But I love that one. Yeah, that's a good one. I actually got nervous at one point. I'm like, I wonder, so I have some friends who are already divorced who got married before us. And I'm like, and one of them was kind of around that time. And I was like, Oh man, I wonder if that's a really real thing. Yeah. I wonder if this is, (laughs) I wonder how hard it's going to be after seven years. (laughs) Is it always going to be a struggle? Is it supposed to be? And I legit got worried about it for a minute. And I was like, that's ridiculous. It, it is what it is, right? I, I've always kind of thought this was a myth, but I was curious about where it came from. I actually kind of forgot that it was even a thing. Was a- I mean, I knew, I knew, I kind of knew that people had said that seven years once, well, I've actually heard different things like the first two years are the hardest of marriage. I've heard that mm-hmm. and I've heard year seven is hard and I've heard I've heard like certain years are harder than others in a marriage, but I, I didn't realize that 
you know, in the midlife crisis to that whole thing, mm-hmm. depending on where that shows up in, in the years of your timeline of marriage, I think that probably has a big effect on things. Cause I think midlife crisis is real. Yeah. I'm not looking forward to that. I'm not looking forward to menopause either. I was thinking about that the other day. Me neither. I just dealing with the hormone issues I'm dealing with now. I'm like, God, what the fuck is menopause going to look like? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, oh. I was thinking about the same thing, and I was like, Oh my god, that's not long. Mm-hmm. I remember I asked my mom when she did, and I can't remember what she said, but I'm gonna have to ask her again. So, oh. anyway. Weird. We now we got down a rabbit hole. <laughs> Ladies, it's coming for all of us. If you haven't already gone through it, right? I just if you have any uh, suggestions, please share with us because <laughs> want to, I want to start preparing now. <laughs> okay. All right. Number five of Miss Busted: Being overly optimistic is harmful. I am an optimist. I don't believe I'm naive or ignorant. I just, I like to, I like to be an optimist. I try to always look at the bright side. Is being overly optimistic harmful? This article says it's unlikely. Some think that having an optimism bias, believing that good things are more likely to happen than bad things is naive and that fixating on happiness leads to disappointment. Work by June Gruber at the University of Colorado Boulder notes that those who have intense positive emotions frequently may experience health costs such as binge drinking and drug addiction, and that feeling upbeat when inappropriate is dangerous. But others like Hilary Tyndall, author of Up, How Positive Outlook Can Transform Our Health and Aging, point out that trait optimism is not the same as having an optimism bias nor is it a kumbaya attitude. Rather, optimism is pragmatic. You plan to avoid what might go wrong, thus feeling optimistic about a good outcome. So some people, and I get it, like if you're always optimistic and you're always like the cup's half full, the cup's half full, the cup's half, it's so great. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's like, let me just take your rose colored glasses and throw them in the trash. Yeah, I am not that person. And some, sometimes that can bother me too. I'm like, I just want you to feel feelings with me for a second yeah, and not just be like, it's going to be great. It's like, (laughs) it's not, it's not all great. It doesn't feel great right now. Okay. But I I, I get how, if we can plan for the things that come up and be realistic about, you know, roadblocks and speed bumps and also have compassion, you know, you don't have to be the most empathetic person, but have compassion for others and what they're feeling. I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah. All right. Number six of Miss Busted is all stress is bad stress. And I think we've kind of talked about this before, but just a healthy reminder. Stress is the feeling you get when something challenging presents itself. Oftentimes the sense that you cannot handle everything coming at you. The demands exceed your resources, but stress in small amounts that can be energizing, especially when you believe that you can master the challenge. On the other hand, chronic stress that you don't think you can overcome can be unhealthy and erode hope. So good stress is the hope that you can. It energizes you. I can't overcome this. That chronic negative stress can really manifest when you feel like you cannot overcome this obstacle. Research finds that the threats of social identity produce most stress in terms of elevating cortisol. Cortisol is our stress hormone. Ways to reduce levels of chronic bad stress include reaching out to social support, learning healthy methods to repraise situations and simply going outdoors, like going for a walk. Amen to that. Going outdoors, do it. 
Um, nature is a well-known stress buster and simply switching your environment can alter your thinking. I talk about this quite a bit is change your environment, go outside, do something, rearrange your office, like do something that energizes the space you're in. Cause that has a tremendous effect on your mood and how you're able to think and process what is happening, right? Whether it's good or bad. Like I have a pile of papers right now in my office that is starting to mount and overflow the space it's been given. Mm-hmm. I have a dedicated area and I look at it and it's in my view and I'm like, and it's stressful. And I'm like, I need to get that taken care of. It's not like it's, it's stressful to the point where it's causing problems on my health, but having your environment be messy or disorganized or those little things just kind of creep in your brain and they kind of ride there. Mm -hmm. They ride shotgun and you don't even realize it. So creating order in your space definitely helps relieve stress. And two, I think it's like how long we carry it too. It's like how, I don't remember the story, but it was like somebody held up a glass of water and someone was like, how heavy is this? Well, it doesn't matter how heavy it is. It's how long you carry it. Mm-hmm. Because if you had your arm in the air for 20 minutes, you'd get tired, right? Yeah. And even though the glass of water weighs the same, you get tired after a while. So it's not necessarily the stress that you're you know, experiencing. It's how you handle it. And Listen, we all handle stress in different ways and we have all, we all have our ways of coping through stress, but some stress that's minor that we end up amplifying in our own minds to make it worse than it really is. We can bring back down and manage it at a more healthy level if we are just more objective about what's going on. Amen to that. Yeah. So in this section of this article, there was a, a little paragraph about the difference between anxiety and fear. And I thought that would be great to point out right now in handling stress, you know, is it from anxiety or is it fear-based? And so what is the difference between the two? A gentleman by the name of Joseph Ledow, director of the Emotional Brain Institute at New York University, describes fear as an emotion that is focused on a specific external thing that's present and likely to cause harm. A snake, a dog that's ready to attack you, a mugger. Um, a cliff in front of you, right? So external anxiety is internal and is often experienced as a response to an imagined and even unlikely threat. So anxiety Lado says is the price humans pay for having a highly developed prefrontal cortex that can imagine the future, conjuring up anxiety induced scenarios and reinterpreting the past. Oh Yeah. So that brain, we talked about playing tricks on us. We are so good at just manifesting worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we feel joy, right? A lot of experts say joy is the most vulnerable emotion because we want to just sometimes sabotage that with, okay, well, I can't be happy about this because this, we wait for the other shoe that could happen. Yeah. And it's just the other shoe. I I can definitely tell you that as as a human that lives with anxiety on the daily. That's true. I think we use fear as the tangible thing that we can call out, right? Because it feels like something we can actually hold in our hands is fear. But I think at the end of the day, the anxiety that we cause ourselves is different than the things that we're actually fearful of. Like, I feel like you have fear right now over a virus. That's something you can be afraid of. 
Whereas the anxiety of the future is a different framing current events with this whole comparison between fear and anxiety. Yeah. We definitely have great imaginations. Oh yeah. It's like also, you know, anxiety is worrying about, it's like praying for the things you don't want to happen. However, at the end of the day, we're all human and we have those brains that can imagine things and it's hard to get out of that habit. It's hard to get out of that thought process Yeah, without a, without a serious amount of awareness and um, emotional capacity to work on it. So I think that's key. Um, having the patience to work through it too. All right. Number seven of myths busted women and men experience jealousy for the same reasons. Again, it's a, it's an interesting myth, but the, the theory at the end is kind of what stood out to me. So research has found differences in gender experiences of jealousy, though some experts caution that further study is needed and that the current findings should not justify infidelity work by David M. Buss of university of Texas at Austin shows that 60% of male college students find sexual infidelity more upsetting than emotional infidelity versus the 17% of women college students. Hmm. Interesting. But the theory, so it says in theory, this is what I thought was interesting in the stone age. Men couldn't be sure of paternity unless his partner stayed monogamous and the continuation of his gene line relied on his investing resources in his children. For women, continuing the gene line meant having a second partner invest their resources in raising her children, not her rivals, which would divert from her partner's resources. So to me, that kind of sounds like where this whole monogamous thing came from. One, the men wanted to extend their genes their gene pool, mm-hmm. right? And they needed to know that that offspring, their young were in fact theirs. And the women wanted to extend the genes, but in the way that they're just the way that it was set up for them, that they really needed that security from their significant other at that time. Right. So yeah. And stability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's some Flintstone shit right there. Yeah. I liked it. I just think it's fascinating where some of these things come it is from. Fascinating. All right. We're almost done. Number eight of myths busted is there's no evolutionary reason for depression. This might rattle some cages. People might not agree with this, but this is why I want to get this out there. There's so much information and it's always changing about the brain emotions. And so many people suffer from depression, whether it's clinical depression, um, seasonal affective disorder, which is basically seasonal depression. Like when you don't get enough sunshine, there's so many different variations of depression but certain experts believe that depression could be a sign of evolution in people. And this is, and I'll just start with that and then I'll read this. So if you ask evolutionary psychologist, Paul W. Andrews, who considers depression, a silver lining an evolved adaptation that helps the gene line survive, though it certainly doesn't feel like it when the person is experiencing it. Andrews theorizes that by dampering our mood, depression encourages people to slow down and think about the problem until they have come up with a solution. He believes that depression alerts us to a threat in the same way as pain or anxiety does, prioritizing that threat in our minds until it's resolved. So it's saying, Mm -hmm. hey, something's wrong. Why? And then being able to resolve that. So there may be something in your environment that's causing you depression, like that seasonal. 
right. uh, depression. Like you need, there needs to be a change in your environment. There needs to be a change in your activity or a change in your biology, right? So psychologists such as Jonathan Rottenberg also believe depression evolved to be adaptive, possibly putting the brakes on behavior where a challenge was insurmountable to spare valued emotional resources. So it's protecting you emotionally. Interesting. Um, just two different viewpoints on it. Um, Cause depression can be very debilitating and um, so many people again, struggle with it and suffer with it, but it's just a different viewpoint. I thought it was. I like to share. I, I find it very interesting. Yeah. All right. We're going to end on a higher note with the ninth one, the ninth myth busted here. And it says, Laughter is all about humor. And funnily, it's not. Sure, we explode when we find something hilarious, but that's not the only reason we giggle. Research finds we laugh 30 times more often with others than we do when we're solo, and not just because we're swapping jokes. Scientists theorize that laughter is a signal that communicates agreement, affiliation, and affection, all to reinforce social bonding. We laugh in the response to unfunny statements from our conversation partners and in a response to other people's laughter, sometimes called antiphonal laughter. And the urge to laugh with others may involve the mirror neurons, which um, those mirroring is like when we yawn, right? You yawn, then I yawn because I see you doing it. So yeah. I just made Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. I'm going <laughs> to yawn. <laughs> we also laugh while we are conversing. In fact, people are more likely to laugh while they are talking versus listening. So like when we share oh. stories, you know, the person talking is probably generating the energy and they, they can envision the scenario they they're reflecting on it and they're laughing and it causes others to laugh. So I love that. I, I think one that's one of my favorite things is laughing. One of my most, most favorite things is seeing like babies laugh. Yes. Because you're like, how do you even know what funny is? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and the, and the silliest things make them laugh. And it's like one of those really good, like gut laughs where it's belly laugh, where it's just like big, it's a big laugh. And I just, I don't know. I just love it. If you need a good laugh yourself, just go on YouTube and search for babies laughing and you will have probably you'll get an ab workout and you'll feel better because it's hilarious. But yeah. Yeah. I love laughing. I love making people laugh. And I just, I think humor is sometimes the best medicine for anything. One of my favorite things to do is to go to comedy shows just because they're so, you can't be at a comedy show and not feel good. Yeah. The energy there, even if not everything's funny, it's like, I laugh at jokes at a comedy show that I don't necessarily think is funny, but I'm just there and I'm in a good mood. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to enjoy it. And I laugh anyway. It's great. Yeah. And I think, um, it's, it's contagious, but one of my most favorite things is when somebody has a funny laugh and you're laughing at their laugh Yeah, and then you're all laughing harder because when you laugh at someone's laugh, I don't remember, I can, I've worked in places where somebody starts laughing and they can't stop. And then the laugh is funnier <laughs> than the thing that you were actually laughing about. I have and, a couple uh, of those at work now well at the care center where I used to work all the time and I just I miss their laughs they're just the best yeah yeah it's it is the best so if you're feeling crappy just laugh one thing that I love that we laugh at a lot is we get on and we use um, a certain snapchat filter and it's our alter egos (laughs) 
And that is good. Snapchat is great for laughter. And it makes, it makes the conversation so much funny. We just say shit and just rag on each other. Or I love it so much. So <laughs> that always makes me laugh. Yes. We have a group chat, uh, me, Lindsay, and then Lindsay Powell, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, our SD bestie from Lash and Glow Beauty Bar. And we each have our alter ego. Mine is Susan, Lindsay is Linda, and then the Powell is Karen. Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, Karen, and Linda. And uh, we use a funny filter that makes our voices very deep and our faces very hideous. And it's just funny. It's great. And of course, no offense to anyone who's named Karen, Linda, or Susan, but we just are using boomer names because it's funny. Yeah. It's like our mom's names basically. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So it's fun. I don't know. We should start doing, um, Snapchat alter egos in our Facebook group. They're good. Hey, if you have a Snapchat alter ego, please post the video in our Facebook group so that we can all get a good laugh. I love it so much. I'll put, I'll put, I commit to you. I will post one of mine. I'll post Linda. You'll, you'll be able to meet Susan. Yeah. Susan's great. great. She's quite the character. Yeah. We need a little bit of that. And she can be spicy in our life. She's very spicy. She's, yeah, she can be a little rougher on the edges. So this was fun. I loved it. Thank you. Emotional myths busted. It was a little informational, but gosh, I just, I'm kind of a nerd that way. I love, I love info. I love filling my brain with knowledge. Next time you play a trivia game, hopefully we have armed you with certain facts. I'm good at that shit. I got like 10 on Jeopardy right the other night, by the way. Yeah. The fact that I still watch Jeopardy, don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) I was killing it one night. It was great. I'm not as good at Wheel of Fortune and better, better Jeopardy, I think. Yeah, I would say the nerd in you probably definitely would be better at Jeopardy. For sure. So, okay. All right. Well, everyone, enjoy your day. Come find us in the Facebook group. (laughs) Don't cut that out. Leave that in. The (laughs) Art of Getting Your Shit Together VIP Facebook group. Although, given the current toilet paper shortage that we're all experiencing, we might end up with the art of shitting somewhere. Mm-hmm. Figure, figure out how to... <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get creative. Yep, figure out how to maintain our sanity through this toilet paper shortage crisis. Um, but we will talk to you next week. Um, come join the conversation over in the Facebook group and uh, take care of yourself. Stay healthy, stay sane, and we love you. And talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. The Art of Getting Your Shit Together is produced and edited by LD Coaching and Blush Cactus Boutique Design Studio. We would love it if you'd head over to iTunes and subscribe, leave us five stars, and write a quick review. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with your friends so that we can continue to grow our tribe. Tag us on Instagram at tagist underscore podcast with your shares, and we'll feature you on our story. Don't forget to grab our free guide, five things you can do right now to get your shit together and start living your best life over at tagus.com slash kick more ass. Remember your life only gets better when you decide to grow and it's never too late to get your shit together.